All right. Well, as you know, Steve is out this morning, and so I will be doing my best to fill the pulpit for him. And uh, we're going to be in the second book of Samuel this morning, chapter 6. And uh, before we get there, though, I, I want to begin our time together just by setting the tone a little bit. And to do that, I want to read a quote from one of my favorite pastors. Listen to these words. He says, Imagine there was a great king who loved his bride more than anything. And he's going to go on a long journey. And before he goes on that journey, he calls you and says to you, You will be the steward. You will take care of my bride. She is most precious to me. Here are the decrees by which you will care for her. This is what you shall do and what you shall not do with her. You must fulfill everything. Your faithfulness will be rewarded and your unfaithfulness, your unconcern for these decrees regarding my bride will be punished. So the king goes on his long journey. He's gone for a long time and the steward begins to notice that the people are losing interest with the king and losing interest in his bride, the queen, because she's somewhat pale and plain and maybe old-fashioned to them. So the steward decides in order to save the kingdom, he's going to remake the bride. And in so doing, he's going to change her simple yet elegant white robe into something a bit more flashy and eye-catching. He may even paint her face, make her hair, and then parade her in front of carnal men in order to attract them somehow back into the kingdom. When that king returns, what do you think he's going to do to that steward? I'm sure he'll take his life. He will judge him most severely. Looking at him, he will say, Who do you think you are that you would do this to my bride, especially in light of the specific commands I gave you? We see this today. So many try to repackage, remake the bride of Christ so that worldly men would be attracted to the king. Those men should be extremely afraid. End quote. I read that because this morning we're going to be focusing on the holiness of God and the sin of irreverence. You see, God takes very seriously the posture of our heart when we come into His presence. And many times over in the Old Testament, we see Him telling His people to rend their heart, that is to tear their heart, not their garments, to show their outward repentance and uh, mourning for their sin and for their situation. Many times God prescribes upon His people certain behaviors, commands, and expectations in order that we might relate to Him according to His Word. So keep that in mind as we move forward. But before we do read, I do want to provide a brief, simplified version of the history of events leading up to the passage we're going to be in this morning. So I'm going to go back to before Samuel's birth. Hannah is the barren wife of Elkanah, and she desires greatly to be a mother. She brings her petitions for a child to the Lord through repeated and persistent prayer in the temple. A child who she promises she will return to the Lord. And before long, Samuel's on the way. So currently, Israel's become a leaderless, marginalized community in the midst of widespread idolatry and disarray after reeling from the time of the judges. Hannah's constant prayers before the Lord represent both her desire for a better future and the long season of bitter and confused uncertainty that consumes Israel as they long for a king. As she prays, Eli, the temple priest and the, the Israelite judge at the time, 
though his eyes are getting dim, he can still see her mouth moving, making out these words. Well, Eli thinks she's drunk and calls out to her and says, put the wine away. And she says, no, Eli, don't think of me as a worthless woman. I'm not drunk. I'm oppressed in my spirit because of my barrenness. And so Eli tells her to go in peace and blesses her request. Eventually, Samuel is born. He's dedicated to the Lord and he serves in the temple under Eli. Now we're going to fast forward quite a bit. And we see the people of Israel encamped at Ebenezer, getting ready to prepare to battle the Philistines again. They thought to themselves, you know what would really make this all about us? Grant us favor and surely divine favor that God would deliver the Philistine army into our hands? If we had that ark thing that was at Shiloh, let's send some men to get the ark of the covenant. We need that thing right here in our presence. And so who better to send than Eli's own lying, thieving, adulterous sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So they bring the ark into the camp. The entire array of Israelites gives a loud shout, something similar to that shout they gave when the walls of Jericho came crashing down. In fact, the scripture says it was so loud the earth resounded and that the Philistines heard it in their camp and they were afraid, thinking that whoever had this ark thing their God was surely with them, and they were going to deliver them. Unfortunately, if you're familiar with the books of Samuel, the presence of the ark did not turn out as they had hoped. The scriptures tell us that on account of Hophni and Phinehas' sins, that is, the temple priest's son, Israel experienced an appalling defeat. In fact, the Hebrew word that is used to describe the battle, we translate as slaughter. They lost thousands. No sooner than the second battle is over than the news of Israel's defeat spreads across the land. And just as was prophesied, Eli's sons die. He hears about it in Shiloh, falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. The Philistines continue to make their way conquering through Shiloh. They take the Ark of the Covenant back to their fake God's house and set it up. But something happens when they get it there. They're struck with plagues, mice, and tumors, and boils. And so they say, we better put this in a different city. So they move it. Happens again. Another city. Happens again. So they said, you know what? We need to get rid of this thing. Clearly, it's not on our side. So they put it on a cart with a box of gold as an offering. And they send it to some Levites in Bet Shemesh. And the Levites say, well, we're going to send it to Abinadab's house where Abinadab and his consecrated son Eleazar care for the ark for over half a century. And so when David retrieves the ark, Abinadab's other two sons, possibly grandsons, Uzzah and Ahio, accompany the group back to Jerusalem. And so if you haven't done so, turn to your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible, it should be on the screen for you. And if you're able, please stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by a name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. 
They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of firwood and with lyres and pipes and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gilite, or Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Lord, thank you again for your holy scriptures. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to save sinners, Lord, of which we all are, me especially. God, I thank you today that you have given us opportunity to break open the bread of life, to worship in spirit and truth. And Father, I pray that you would give clarity, a spirit of discernment and wisdom to your people and myself today, and that these stammering lips, Lord, would glorify you, would exalt Christ, and that they would be spirit-empowered, Father, for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to notice here is the seriousness of holiness in three different areas. Number, name, and procession. And I'm just going to roll right through those first four verses again quickly because I think it's important to see where this is coming from. So verse 1 says, Now again David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to build Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that he might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Pay attention there that they say new cart. That's going to come up. It's very important. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. So the first thing is the number. David assembles his troops for a third time. The other two times it was to go against the Philistines. A third time, this military escort he creates for the Ark of the Covenant. But it wasn't just a mere handful of some chosen Israelites. This was a group of 30,000 men because David realized the seriousness of the task before him. He was ushering the, the symbolic Ark of the Covenant, God's resting place of Israel, the blessing of God, from one place to the city of David. And he realized the importance and necessary uh, or need it was to have a military procession to go before. The second thing is the name. Additionally, they were bringing up the Ark of God, it says, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. 
Now, cherubim served as traditional guardians of sacred spaces. If you remember back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell and God said, let them remove, kick them out of the garden lest they take from the tree of life and live forever. And what did he station between them and the garden? But the cherubim with the flaming sword to guard that sacred space they were no longer allowed to get into. God was there. And when referencing the name, the Israelites were referring both to the name of the Almighty Holy One of Israel and His very presence among them. God's symbolic throne with His people upon the earth was that mercy seat on the top where the cherubim's wings met together. And that, that lid that rested on the box was solid gold, probably 200 plus pounds. And it represented the Lord of armies. And in 1 Samuel 4, the ark was referred to the seat of authority of the Lord Almighty. In 1 Samuel 6, it was referred to twice. Once as the ark of God and the ark of the Lord. But what's interesting is both of those names are used seven times in that chapter to represent completion. And the third area where we need to look at the seriousness of holiness is the procession. You have the 30,000 men going before. People are celebrating, playing instruments. And they put the Ark of the Covenant of God, the very blessing, throne of God, upon a new cart. Now, why is the cart important? Well, God is very clear in Exodus about how to transport the Ark. I know a lot of us, we get into that mode where we're, we're going to read the Bible in a year this time, and then we get to Exodus, we start talking about the tabernacle and the measurements and Leviticus, and we start, oh my goodness. But there's very big details about how to transport that ark. He hasn't put rings in the side of the box and then used poles that are overlaid with gold that are not supposed to be removed from the rings on the side of the ark, and they're supposed to bear it on their shoulders. Very clear, Exodus 25, read that chapter. And yet here we have the ark being transported not according to God's word or his standard. They were actually transporting the ark of the covenant of God Almighty according to the Philistine standard. The only difference was they, they got a new cart. They didn't want to use the dirty Philistine cart. But they still were not transporting this holy object according to God's standard and rule. Now, if you continue to read chapter 6, you'll see that beginning in verse 12, following David, he successfully transfers the ark to the city. But this time, and I tell you this because we're not going to get to it, but this time, there's no mention of a cart. There's mention of proper procession, of offering sacrifices before it, and doing what they're supposed to do to get it to where it's supposed to be. And here, here, here's a premature bit of application. It's never been about the box overlaid with gold inside and out. It's, it's about reverence and holiness and obedience. And they were transporting it on a cart. The bottom line is that they were given clear instructions on how to do something that was very specific. It meant everything to the Lord to represent His holiness and His glory. And they disregarded it. They did not follow. Let me, let me see if I can draw this out a bit. So... We like to watch Gordon Ramsay once in a while, and if you're familiar with Gordon, we don't watch the nasty part. Sometimes he has shows where he says some bad potty words. We don't watch those. We watch the kids' version in the YouTube channel. He doesn't use potty words on, ver on those. But he has a show called Master Chef, and if you're familiar with it, who's familiar with Gordon Ramsay? Anybody? Okay, quite a few of us. He makes really good food. 
They have a, a show called Master Chef, and they get a massive trophy, the winner does, and they get this big bunch of money to do whatever they want with it. But they have to face constant challenges in cooking, and each challenge is more rigorous than the previous one. And each dish prepared, whether it's dinner or dessert, is tested by all these judges, and then a process of elimination until eventually there's only one. And then occasionally, to, really, to make it real difficult, Gordon will st stand in front of all the people and prepare one of his signature dishes and expect them to follow directions and pre prepare it exactly as he does. And so there's a junior version called Master Chef Junior. And they're down to the top 10 kids. I mean, these are 8-year-olds up to 11-year-olds, and these kids are the top 10 chefs in America according to this standard. And this one kid, he's been doing really, really well through this whole competition. Hasn't been eliminated, made a mistake here and there. And Gordon says, okay, well, it's time now to make the challenge really difficult. I'm going to prepare a meal before them, show them how it's done. They're supposed to take notes, follow directions, and do as I do, and provide the meals I provided. Well, this kid didn't do that. He didn't follow the directions clearly, even though he knew what the directions were, and he was eliminated. Now that pales in comparison to the, to the analogy we're trying to set here for what happens later on in this chapter and how important the Ark of the Covenant is. But when God gives very clear instructions, it's not so we can go, hmm, no, I don't like that part. I do like that part though. I'll take that. This, 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 is, this, is, not, this is not a buffet line. And what he was telling his people to transport this most holy and sacred object where he rested, where he spoke to Moses on in the cloud, and where he had Aaron the priest sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for forgiveness of sins, to transport it with poles upon your shoulder so you don't touch it, lest you die. Not because the box is somehow special or sacred, but God's presence was there. And it was about reverence and obedience. And they didn't do it. He gives them explicit instructions. And when we fail to follow them, things fall apart. I tell my kids this all the time. It don't really matter if you're a Christian or not. It does on where you spend eternity. But for this point, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. You will face trial in this life. You will face persecution. You will face hard times, difficulties, death, peer pressure, the loss of a loved one. So-and-so at school's got this and I don't. Name it, you will face it. The difference is how you handle it and who's on your side. And if you're not following His instructions on how to deal with those sorts of things, you're going to crash and burn. You might even be eliminated from something. Here's perhaps the point, other than hopefully our, not our grumbling tummies. God gives very clear instructions on how we're to live our lives if we are called by the name, the only name, the name of the Lord of hosts. He says in Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, Do whatever you want. He says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Many times over in the New Testament, we're called to be holy and blameless. And let me, let me stick this out there. This is not legalism. Nobody's perfect. But it is 
living a pious life in obedience and reverence to God because He is worthy. No longer do we look to the Ark of the Covenant of God's dwelling place, nor even the temple or even the church building. We were in prayer this morning, and I think it was Carolyn, we were talking about how we're the church. You and me are the church. That we have been blessed tremendously with this building to come into, to sit in these pews, to worship the Lord in peace and comfort. But that's not the church. That's not where we look to God, to see God. We are the church. You and I are the very temple. And He says we're to be holy, set apart, and blameless before the Lord in our actions, our thoughts, our words, and our desires. I know... I was a teenager once, and I know there was immense amount of peer pressure. Immense amount of peer pressure. I stood firm for a long time, but eventually I caved to certain things that I ought not to have caved to, and I'm sure many of us have. The point is, I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't following my Heavenly Father and listening to what He says about me. I wasn't living my life according to His standard. I was living it according to mine. And what happened is I ended up with people I shouldn't have been with. I ended up doing things I shouldn't have done. And ended up with pain and heartache and frustration that still follow me into my almost 40s now. He, he doesn't set standards and say, now, go live your life and don't have any fun. Don't get out of line. That's not what it's for. It's like going down a steep hill or up the, the mountain. There's guardrails. So that if you slip, step out of line, they're going to protect you from going off and dying and being eliminated. Christians, we ought to be the most joyous, the most happy. Especially in following Jesus Christ and His commandments and statutes. Not worldliness. And I've had people tell me before, Christians, well, that's just the way God made it. That's just who I am. Trust me. That is the way you are and that's the way I am. It's called sin. But if you have a legitimate experience with Jesus Christ, you don't stay that way. Trust me. If I said, oh, that's just the way I am and I reverted back to where I used to be, you all would not like me very much at all. But I don't stay there. You don't stay there because Jesus Christ has changed us from one way to another. So ask yourself this. And I ask myself all the time. Do I behave differently on Sunday than I do the other days of the week? Do I think differently? Do I have different desires? Do I project myself differently on every other day of the week but Sunday? Then stop. And imagine yourself as a mirror. God's glory and holiness radiate from His being, His existence. And ask yourself, is that what you reflect as a mirror created in His image? Is that what's coming off of you and out of you and maybe even into you? 
Because it's not what goes in, Jesus said, that defiles a man. It's what comes out. Blasphemies, lies, thieves, adultery, all these things. Because the implicit lesson there is what you put in eventually comes out. When I studied coding, there was a term long before my time and it will be there long after. Garbage in, garbage out. If you feed yourself trash, you're going to start to stink. Or as they said in the movie, once you lay down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Bottom line is, you become what you ingest through your eyes, through your mouth, through your ears, and who you spend your time with. And God has very clear commands on how, as Christians, people call by the name, the only name, the Lord of hosts, of armies, how we're supposed to live our life. Not perfection. Lord knows none of us are perfect. If you are, we need to talk. (laughs) But it's about obedience and reverence. We wouldn't have as many problems as we have in our life if we spent more time seeing how life was supposed to be lived. Reflect God's image, reflect His holiness and His glory because that's what we're called to do as mirrors of His image is to reflect it. The second thing and and final thing is the sin of irreverence. And this is in verse 5 through 10. I'm going to reread those real quick here because I think, like I said, it's important to know where this comes from. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Pereth Uzzah to this day, which in Hebrew means outburst against Uzzah, or outburst to Uzzah. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and then finishing off there, Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So earlier we talked about the way in which God prescribed the transportation of the ark. He specifically said to never remove the poles and the rings on the sides, that the Levites and the sons of Kohath were supposed to bear it up on their shoulders because they were the only ones consecrated to that particular service. Nobody else. Instead of following the Lord's direction on this, David, his men, and even the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah, and Ahio, transport the ark just as the Philistines did. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. Can you imagine if the world said, you know what, I don't like some of that stuff in there. Can you cut it out and make it look like what I want? Oh, sure, no problem. We would be doing no different. We would be doing it according to the Philistines in the world. They, they, they transported the Ark of the Covenant according to the Philistine standard. David was taking the lead with his men, the whole company of Israel, and they were understandably celebrating this momentous occasion. 
It was a momentous occasion, and it was very admirable that they were bringing this up finally after it had been in exile for half a century to the city of David to be blessed and to worship and serve the Lord. I mean, there's a new king over Israel, right? The ark's coming back. It's cause for rejoicing, for singing, for praise, and for worship to God. That ought to be how we celebrate the Lord. But again, that wasn't the issue. The issue is how they were transporting it. David and his people are celebrating while the ark is being mishandled. Again, if this was being cut up metaphorically, and we were celebrating why it was being done so, and we weren't standing for what was right, we're doing the same thing. As they come to the threshing floor, quite possibly in that time it was a particular holy site, the oxen begin to stumble, right? So the cart's wobbly and the ark's kind of bouncing around. And Uzzah, thinking the ark might fall to the dirty ground, reaches out his hand to steady it, and in so doing, immediately he's killed. But that doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, after all, he just appeared to have good intentions, didn't he? I feel like if that was the case, God would have inspired Uzzah took out his hand, reached and grabbed the ark because of his good intentions instead of his irreverence. Here's the very mercy seat of the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and all that is in them, the maker of us, the invisible Adonai, where he meets with his people on the mercy seat, the cherubim, the keepers of the sacred place. That's where Aaron, I said, sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices in the same place where Uzzah meets his fate. Why? Let's back up a moment see if we can figure this out. Listen to what God's word says in Numbers 4 and in 1 Samuel 6. Numbers 4.15. When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tents of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Numbers 4.20. But they shall not go in, not even go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment or they will die. 1 Samuel chapter 6, not 2 Samuel, 19 says, God, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, where the Philistines carried the ark, struck them down because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Uzzah's death was a result of his irreverence before God and failure to follow the rules of the Lord. First, the ark would be, not be in that situation in the first place if they were transporting it correctly. Second, to think for a moment that the ground would have been dirtier, or that the ark would have broken, and that was more admirable than a sinner before holy God touching something that God said not to touch, is very presumptuous. That ark could have fallen, broken, on the dirty ground, and they would have been no worse for the wear, and neither would have God, because He is God Almighty. He would have instructed them to build another if that was the case. And the ground is not dirty. We are because of our sin. But because he acted in opposition to God's clear command regarding the ark, and because of that, divine judgment fell upon him. And in similar fashion, the death of Uzzah brings to mind the deaths of Nabab or Nadab and Abihu. You remember them early on in Scripture? They were kind of jealous and envious, so they said, you know what? 
We should be able to offer things before the Lord too. So we're going to go offer our fire before the Lord. And what does it say? God struck them down. The fire came out and consumed them because they offered strange fire before the Lord. They disregarded the clear commands. What about Ananias and Sapphira? It was never a problem that they sold their house and had money. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that they lied and made it seem one way to everybody else so that they could look a certain way before other people. Irreverence. They both died. What about Achan? When, when, when Israel went to battle Ai, Joshua was for sure, we're going to have it. We're going to take it. The Lord has promised it. And then what happens? They experience divine judgment and lose. Because Achan disregarded God's clear commands to devote everything in Ai to destruction. When Joshua found out, Achan and his entire family was put to death. Why? Joshua says, be honest before the Lord. What did you do? They experienced a great loss. He said, when I saw the things that the Lord said to devote to destruction, I coveted them, and I wanted them, and I took them. Perhaps you may be wondering why David became angry. I know I was. <laughs> like, well, I'm angry with the Lord? Hold on a minute, let's slow down. It's likely David became angry because he was the reason for Uzzah's death. Anything about that? Here is the new king of new Christian king of Israel, was a man after God's own heart, knew the Old Testament, had all the commands, had all the laws, knew how the ark was supposed to be transported. And he allows it to be placed on a cart, at least it was a new cart, and carried along, and then celebrates why everybody else is mishandling this relic of God. And then unfortunately, that mishandling of the ark resulted in Uzzah's fate. David then became afraid of the Lord. And this is not, you know, we say, we try to explain to our kids, you're supposed to fear God, but not like... Uh, you know, there's a different kind of afraidness or a fear. Like you're supposed to fear him as holy and perfect and God alone and you're not. But this afraid that David becomes is the same word that Adam used when he said, I hid myself because I was afraid when I heard you walking in the garden because I was naked. He was literally afraid of God and what might happen now because of this situation. David fears that more calamity will come upon his reign and the people of Israel. So instead of moving the ark to the city of David, he sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom, a Philistine convert who converted to Judaism and actually lives in Judah. What's the application? Why does any of this matter to my life? There's reference to three arks in Scripture. All three represent blessing and judgment. When God decided to judge the sin of humanity before he instructed Noah, who the scripture says was a preacher of righteousness, to construct an ark that would withstand the floodwaters. Noah preached righteousness and repentance and reverence to God many years as he was building this ark. And eight people made it on. Out of hundreds of thousands of people, eight people. 
It's prudent to say that many people in Noah's day led an irreverent life before a holy God, and as a result, their fate was sealed with the first raindrop of judgment. The second ark was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold inside and out, but it was never truly about the box overlaid with gold. Nor the 200 pound plus solid gold fixture on top where the cherubim was. It was never about any of that. It was about a people acting with reverence to a holy and glorious God who deserves and even demands that very reverence just by his existence. The ark wasn't God. The things inside it were God. They were merely reminders. The mercy seat was not God. The ark was a visual reminder to a people that a holy God who created the entire cosmos expected to be revered and worshipped according to His standard, not ours. And not theirs. God's glory alone is what worship is about, and worship is more than singing songs. Don't get me wrong, it's certainly singing songs of praise and adoration to God and love. But it is a way of life. Worship doesn't stop at 12, 15 when you hit the door and go out of the church building. Because if it does, then you're not being holy, set apart from the world. You're going right back into it and nobody can tell the difference. Imagine if the church was a Where's Waldo game. Would anybody be able to find us? Irreverence is a sin, and Uzzah, along with many others, experienced divine judgment for it. The third ark was God in the flesh. The same God who created the perfect cosmos, created mankind in His image to reflect His glory upon the entire earth, is the same God who stepped into our messy creation that we messed up, into the humanity of the Son, Jesus Christ. We sinned against the Holy God, and like Uzzah, our fate was sealed. But thanks be to God that He had planned to send the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin since before the foundation of the earth. And this Jesus is the last hope of any who do not wish to end up like Uzzah and all the other irreverent people in the history of the world. There is no other Jesus said, in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. When He comes on the clouds with glory, in the, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, He said people will be just like they were in Noah's day. Living irreverently, partying, hanging out, giving in marriage, getting marriage, drinking, eating, doing all these things, not showing fear and reverence to a God who is more than deserving. And Jesus is the last hope to escape that judgment. And if you're here today and you've placed your faith in Christ and you're being delivered from your sins and living the joy and wonder of eternal abundant life here and forevermore, I ask you to examine yourself to see if there's any sin of irreverence in you. Jesus said to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. So ask yourself first, am I loving God with all my heart? That is, are my desires holy unto the Lord? Do they reflect His glory 
Or are the desires of my heart more in line with my flesh? Do I desire the things of God seeking His will? Or do I desire comfort, convenience, material wealth, or other worldly things? Second, ask yourself, am I loving God with all my mind? Do I regularly consume God's Word and study it so that I might apply it to my life? Ask yourself, am I only eating the bread of life on Sunday or Wednesday? Or do I have a regular diet where I fill up daily so that I might not go hungry? Here's a little illustration. When you fail to eat physical food, what happens to your body? Eventually it quits working so well. It's not as strong. You're tired. You're worn out. You're famished. You get headaches. You don't feel good. You might get nauseous or sick. You can't do the amount of work you did before or were doing. Because you're not giving your body the nourishment it needs. How much more when you don't nourish your soul by the bread of life will it break down and crumble and keep you from doing the things that God would have you do when you don't regularly consume it? If you're spiritually famished, you'll live as a spiritually famished person. Now, I know that sounds repetitive, but I'm going to say it again and listen to it slowly. If you're spiritually famished, you're going to live as a spiritually famished person. If you're physically hungry and you don't eat, you'll still be hungry. If you're spiritually hungry and you don't eat, you're going to be hungry. Third, ask yourself, am I loving God with all my soul? Young people, hear me. Everybody hear me, but mostly young people. Your body is a temple of God. And just as He prescribed certain behaviors in the tabernacle and the temple, so too He has prescribed to us how we ought to treat the temple where He dwells. God dwells in you. Every single person that calls upon the name of the Lord, God dwells in you. His Spirit is within your body. So the question becomes, what are you filling your soul with? Are you filling it with the world or with the Word? Are you filling it with holiness or trash? This has to do with where you spend your time, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with. I fight this battle all the time with my kids, especially the older one, you know, he just... He's a good kid. He really is. He just, for some reason, he has trouble choosing friends. <laughs> we all do, I think. You know why? Because we want to be liked. We want people to care about us. And when, when they tell us things we want to hear, we gravitate towards it. But the only person we should care about that cares about us and hear what they have to say is the Lord. Nobody else is going to give an account for you when you stand before Him, whether you're in Christ or not. Don't think to yourself, I'm saved, I can do what I want, go where I want, or live how I want. That's as, about as American as Christianity can get. That's the very spirit of irreverence that Uzzah displayed in his disobedient act, and it cost him his life. God may not strike us dead right now immediately, but in the judgment, we will have to give an account for how we lived. Especially if we claim, claim to be Christians. 
So while faith in Christ is what saves you, it's not a license to a wanton life of flesh and pleasure. God expects those called by His name to reflect His glory and holiness and to be reverent before God in all things, not just when you come into this building on Sunday or Wednesday. And maybe you're here today and have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who by His body and blood, yes, He was a real person, and He was beaten and mocked and spat on because of your sin and my sin. And He was hung on a cross, and He died, and they buried Him. If you have not yet put your faith in Him, I implore you, Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart because when you do, there will come a time just like when Pharaoh hardened his heart that God said, you know what? I'm going to harden it this time. And when he closes that door, nobody can open it. And judgment will come. So repent and believe in Jesus before you end up the same fate as Uzzah. Divine judgment by a holy God against sinners is eternal punishment in His prison called hell. But the good news is that we don't have to. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven and that He would make your life new. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be hard. You know why? Because when you start living for Christ, Satan tries to attack because he gets very, very angry that you've decided to switch sides. And he will try to steal, kill, and destroy your entire life. All the more reason it's important to follow Christ and to live according to his commands and statutes and to revere him. Church, as we close, I just, I don't know where you're at today. I know where I'm at. And I know I'm human. And I struggle every single day. And guess what? That means if I struggle, you all struggle too. Like I said, you're all going to face trials and temptations. It doesn't matter if you're in Christ or not in Christ. The bottom line is, you could have so much more. Your life could be so much better. You can have so much joy and happiness knowing that you're forgiven. And when you go to read God's Word, maybe you say, well, Pastor, I don't know how to start. Pick a gospel and start there and read a chapter a day. Consume the Word of God before the Word of God consumes you in the judgment. If you don't know Christ today, for the love of God and the love of your soul, repent. Put down your pride. Put down your arrogance. Put down your, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. Nobody's helped me so far. I'll do it myself. And live your life for Christ. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and in the proper time, He will exalt you. Nobody's going to do it for you. Pray with me. Lord, thank you again for the beautiful day you've given us. God, I ask that your spirit would continue to fill your people. Lord, that we would see the importance of loving you and serving you with our whole heart, our minds, our body, and our soul. And God, that we would repent of reverence, Lord, and that we would see the importance of walking before you in obedience on the path you've laid for us according to your spirit within us. God, I desperately plead with you for those that don't know you. God, save them before they're devoted to destruction. Be with us as we go now. Let the worship not stop. Let it continue as we walk into Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the days of the week. 
Let us fill ourselves on the bread of life that when we come back, we're full to the flowing and we're just joyful and obedient. And God, I ask for your favor upon these people today as they go walking in newness of life and knowing that Christ has saved them and that Christ will grant them a spirit of strength 